good evening. It's wonderful to be with you, local church, so happy that we can worship alongside together, and we get to reflect on the cross of Christ as we've sung together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son. Thank you that we can reflect on his work. Help us, Lord, to know him. Help us, Lord, to worship. Transform our hearts together as your body, bought with your precious blood. We thank you for the gathered church, that we can learn of you, that we can delight in you together. Thank you for being able to praise you in song and the truth that we sing, the work of your son. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can cleanse us. We praise you, Lord. May he be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Almost 10 years ago now, um, our young adult ministry had planned a special outreach where we put together a survey of about three or four questions that we would ask passers-by in the mall. It was actually uh, at Great Northern Mall in North Olmsted. And the outreach attempt lasted all of 30 minutes. Uh, once, once security figured out what we were up to, uh, we were booted out pretty quick. But there was a sweet woman with a couple elementary-aged kiddos that stopped and sat down with me and, and was gracious enough to take, take the survey. And one of the survey questions was, what happens after someone dies? And I remember after she gave her answer, she kind of paused, um, kind of chuckled a little bit and looked up at me and, and she asked me, is that right? And, uh, you know, it was kind of a funny moment. I, I don't remember her answer being unorthodox. I think it was fine. And she kind of was half kidding, right? Like, I had the clipboard. And she's kind of like, is that, you know, maybe, is that fully right? Is it, maybe it's wrong. Uh, is it not enough? You know, how could she be sure? I started to reflect on that, you know. Should the right answer to the question have given her the assurance of her life after death? Or should I have had more assurance because, you know, again, I'm holding the clipboard and I even, you know, helped orchestrate this incredibly successful outreach at the mall. You know, so clearly I'm secure. You know, a close friend of mine spent uh, you know, several decades of his life in a legalistic church group, and he, he would tell you it's a, it was a cult group. And he said that every time the, the subject of heaven came up, it was very common to hear members say, I hope I make it. And I think that is something embedded in the quiet recesses of our hearts, this nagging thought, I hope I make it. I hope the Lord won't turn me away in the end. You know, we look around and see other Christians living far holier and better lives than we are, and we think, you know, am I doing what I should be doing? Am I living as I should be living? Or we look inwardly and we're full aware of the imperfections and the pitfalls within us the thoughts we think, the words we say, and the question comes right back. Am I going to make it? Am I saved? And I don't think this struggle of salvation assurance is only for the legalists and the moralists. I think it's a Christian struggle. I know I struggle with this. How do I know? 
How can I be sure that when I close my eyes for the last time in this life, I'll be safe in the next one? And that's the question we're addressing tonight. Where does our assurance of salvation rest? And we're going to take this uh, just a layer deeper because, you know, part of the problem with assurance is that there's a million and one counterfeit assurances of salvation. Things, you know, make us feel more secure, more assured that we're going to make it, um, but they serve only as counterfeits. You know, things like what we do or what we've done, our obedience. You know, we've had a particularly good week spiritually. Our, our read our Bibles almost every day. We've prayed more. You know, we've given and we feel maybe a little more secure that we're saved. Or maybe uh, there's the counterfeit of affirmation. Someone you trust and love has noticed competence or gifting or talent, and we feel like, okay, I'm good. I, or if people seek out our advice. You know, we've been a believer for a long time. Maybe we don't struggle with the sins of our youth anymore. We're more mature. We hold a position of leadership in the church we have influence, we're heavily involved, we've been baptized. We took the Lord's Supper with a clear conscience. Or, you know, we had a feeling or a sense of God's presence at one point, and it, and it confirms to us that we're saved. But absolutely none of which, by the way, I just mentioned are bad things, right? They're wonderful things. But they're counterfeits if we rely on any of them for our standing before God. If we believe that our salvation is wrapped up in any of those things or more, it's counterfeit. If you have your Bibles, whatever form you have them, if you could turn with me to Matthew 7, um, possibly one of the scarier passages in all of Scripture, Matthew 7. And this is, uh, Jesus is bringing his famous Sermon on the Mount on the Mount to a close. And as he's wrapping up, he says there in verse 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Who wants to hear this from the lips of Jesus? This is bone chilling. It's Jesus' commentary on the end of days when each of us and every person through all history will be presented before the Lord for a final judgment. And what's scary about what he describes is that many will be presented saying, Lord, Lord. And that's an address of endearment, of intimacy. It's an address for a family member. When you repeated somebody's name in this day, you communicated love and respect. You see it in the Old Testament, right? God calls out of the burning bush, Moses, Moses. And later to Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. David laments his son, Absalom, Absalom. In the New Testament, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, in Acts 9. Why are you persecuting me. So these people are presented before Jesus, and they're saying, Lord, Lord, we honor you. We love you. You are dear to us. But what's even more unsettling is the work that they have done in their lives. They say, Lord, Lord, we've told others about you. 
We've combated spiritual warfare. We've done all kinds of mighty things. And these are arguably maybe some of the best works that man can do. And not only that, they say, we did it all in your name, which is the right answer, right? That's the right way to do works. We didn't do it for our glory. We did it for your glory. We didn't do it for our name. We did it for your name. It's an expression of unity. We did it all in your name. We belong to you. These are people that fill churches, right? Who hold leadership positions, who preach at pulpits, who know Christianity. They know their Bibles up and down. They're the most righteous-looking people among us. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me. Why? I mean, isn't that just the most cruel thing for Christ to do? They gave their entire lives to him. Why won't he let them in? What's the issue? The issue is their assurance. They have counterfeit assurance. They trusted in themselves to make it. At the end, they say, Jesus, look at what we did. Let us in. What does scripture say? Scripture says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will become the best version of themselves. And whoever believes in him will perform the best works of all mankind. No, whoever believes in him will not perish. Jesus didn't come for our works. He didn't come to make us better people. He came to save souls from perishing. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God, Romans 3. The heart is deceitful above all things, not some things. All things, and, and we're desperately sick. Who can understand the human heart? Jeremiah 17. Who can deliver his soul from the power of the eternal grave, says the psalmist. These people have come saying, Lord, Lord, in Matthew 7, they have the appearance of godliness, of righteousness, but they neglected the most important thing. It's their need for mercy from God for their sin. Trusting in ourselves for salvation in any form is as effective as, as asking a dead man to scale a mountain. Because if we do that, we've rejected our true spiritual condition before God. God says that we're born with a nature enslaved to sin. We inherited it from the first man, Adam, the first rebellion against God. And so now we're born at enmity with God. We're born enemies of God with natures swelled with pride, devoted to everything under the sun except for God. And this condition renders us spiritually dead, God says. I'm not saying that. God says this. He says, by nature, we are children of wrath. So trusting in ourselves for salvation is, is also a disregard or, or really a disdain for God's holiness. We have to remember God is holy. We like to remember God is love, right? But God is also majestic in his nature, pure light. He's endless in his perfection complete righteousness, indescribable beauty. John the Apostle testifies that God is light, and in him there can never be a hint of any darkness at all, is how he puts it. God is holy. And this is why evil can't be overlooked or ignored by God. He can't dwell with it, Psalm 5. 
His justice demands a righteous punishment for it. And that's why the soul who sins shall die, says the Lord, Ezekiel 18. And not just physical death, right? But again, spiritual death with an eternal grave, a conscious eternity filled with loud weeping, grinding down of teeth, where the worm does not die and the flame does not go out. We have to remember this. Jesus never balked at sharing that with people. He actually shared more about eternal condemnation than he did of heaven. Why? Because he's cruel? No, because he loves sinners. And so he says, whoever believes in me will not perish, but will have eternal life. The question we're asking tonight is, how can we be sure? How can we know this is true? Is it a card we sign, a prayer we pray, a tithe we give, a theology we understand? What is our assurance that we are in fact saved? We're safe by the Lord. Well, St. Paul summarizes the whole gospel of Christ, in fact, the whole Bible, really, in one sentence. And we're going to put it on the screens here so that we could read it together. Can we read this together? It's 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. <laughs> Might be a little challenging. <laughs> Impressive crew if we can. Okay. We have a few more seconds here. It's okay. We have Bibles too. We can look it up if you want. Okay. If you can read that, wonderful. If not, feel free to look it up. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. We'll try and read this together. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. And this is our assurance. Jesus knew no sin. Let's look at his unjust trial. So Peter, who spent every day for over three years with Jesus, he was a direct witness of what Jesus experienced at his trial. He wrote about it, and he said, Jesus committed no sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. You know, the whole purpose of the trial was to accuse Jesus of sin and of deception, deceiving the people. But clearly the trial only proved the opposite. It was his innocence that surfaced. It bolstered his claims. So by the time he makes it to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, Pilate's unwilling to sentence him. Ten times he tries to desperately acquit Jesus, saying, what evil has he done? What evil has he done? But his innocence didn't just start at the trial. God the Father personally testified that this Jesus is his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. Jesus likewise said he always did what pleased his father. What does that mean? It means that he perfectly followed God's will throughout his life. It means he fulfilled every command of the law of God. And this wasn't to achieve his own righteousness, right? Jesus was born righteous. He was conceived of in the virgin's womb by the Holy Spirit. He didn't possess a sin nature. He wasn't born as an enemy of God. So he was able to persevere under every temptation that we face. 
His enemies couldn't accuse him either. It's a strong apologetic for his sinlessness. When they wanted to stone him, Jesus asked, well, which one of you convicts me of sin? And they said, well, not for sin necessarily, but we just don't like what you said. You're saying that you are God, that you're one with the Father, that to see you is to see the Father. We don't like that. Jesus knew no sin. He is radiant light, and in him is no darkness at all. And here's the most crucial part for us. Jesus was made to be sin. Not Jesus was forced to be sin. Right? The verse says that he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to become sin. But how can a sinless man become sin? And God the Father would regard Jesus as a sinner. He treated him as a sinner. And so he would punish him, the Christ, as a sinner with all of his wrath, every last drop. And so Jesus endured the beatings, the mockery, the humiliation, the slander, his skin hanging off of him from the floggings. Muscles and organs exposed. He's likely unrecognizable to onlookers and to his mother. He finally makes it outside the city up a hill about 20 or 30 feet with the help of a stranger who's carrying his crossbeam for him. The Roman centurions carefully laid Christ against the wood, pulling his arms taut as they drove large nails through the bones and arteries in his wrists. And they took his legs over top one another to drive more through the tops of his ankles. And he was hoisted up ruggedly with ropes. If you can picture that, shaking, thrust into a hole so the cross would stand upright, which exacted maximum amount of suffering. And they heard him saying, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Luke says he was repeating that. He did not say that one time. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was stripped. Only a gaudy crown made of thorns remained on his head. The thorns were likely almost a foot in length. There was an inscription of his crime above him which read, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That was his crime. And as he hung there quietly for several hours, he listened to the incessant reviling and mocking all around him. One of the two criminals crucified next to him yelled at him, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, Do you not fear God? since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Christ turned to him saying, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. At noon, there was total darkness. No one could see anything. No one 
would have been prepared with lanterns or torches as this was midday, so utter darkness. Couldn't see hand in front of your face kind of darkness for three hours. Many believe, many believe this is the time when Christ faced what he agonized over in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating tears of blood, anticipating this moment being separated from his father. This is the full weight and effect of sin. Separation from the almighty, holy God. And for Jesus and for us, it's a terror. At 3 p.m., the silence is broken by Jesus crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, giving insight into his agony from a psalm written over a thousand years earlier. This is what Christ is thinking from the cross. He says this, Lord, why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. Yet you are holy. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. You who fear the Lord, praise him from the cross. Praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. He has done it. And as the light started to return, Jesus knew that all was now finished, and yet he waited on the cross to fulfill that last prophecy in Psalm 69. I thirst. So they took a hyssop branch. They soaked it in sour wine that was sitting there. They lifted it to his crusted lips. He drank it and he shouted, It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he bowed his head. He sovereignly gave up his spirit. And the light had fully returned at this point. There was a tremendous earthquake. A 60 foot tall, four inch thick curtain. The Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. So we know who did it. Matthew reports that believers who had died were raised in their tombs at his death and they would come into Jerusalem after his resurrection. The Roman centurion who had witnessed the way Jesus had died and all that occurred at his death, he dropped to his knees, fearful awe, and he praised God. And he said, certainly this man was innocent. Truly this was the Son of God. The Father made the Son to be sin, though he knew no sin, for our sake, for our sake. 
This is a substitutionary work. It's a representative work. God's plan from Eden to Gethsemane to Golgotha was to send his son, the Christ, to die on behalf of sinners. So to reduce Christ's cross to a mere example for us is to lose all of Christianity. To regard Christ's cross as only the beginning of the work that we have to somehow complete in some way is to strip it of its power completely. Jesus absorbed the full weight of the wrath of God in himself on behalf of sinners like you and me. Because we have an inability to do this. We can't do this ourselves. So he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Every single sin, every transgression that's on record before a holy God, canceled, done. The Lord set it aside forever as far as the east is from the west, infinitely, nailing it to his son's cross. And he hasn't just eliminated our sin debt before God, forgiving us completely in him, but Jesus as a representative, that means he credits us with his righteousness. That's what it means that he became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ didn't only remove our impurity before God, he credits us with his purity. So when we lack assurance, Christians, it's because we've forgotten the fullness of what Jesus has done for us. We've forgotten that we've been cleansed, we're forgiven, we've been made holy and blameless before the Father. We belong to him as his precious sons and daughters. And when we're feeling too dirty, or we're feeling crippled by sin, or an addiction, or apathetic, or we're complacent, or we could care less, we have to remember what the cross of Christ has achieved. We're not bound any longer by sin. He was bound so that we live unbound lives. So brothers and sisters, as, as if we remain in sin today as Christians, it's because we want to, not because we're enslaved by sin anymore. We have been ransomed, purchased, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Full atonement, can it be? Yes, it can. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Again, how can we be sure? How can we know this is legit? That we can depend on this? The Son of God was taken down from the cross. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. And on the third day, early Sunday morning, he rose. He's alive. What more could possibly add to this majestic work of God for sinners? Perhaps you noticed uh, Jesus' words there in Matthew 7, where he says that, the only ones who will enter the kingdom of heaven are those who do the will of his Father in heaven. You know, you think, did Jesus undermine the whole thing there? Is, is he after a certain kind or caliber of work before he'll let any of us in his heaven? No. No. Remember the crowds that came to Christ? They sought him out in John 6. Uh, they asked him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The issue is not the works. 
The issue is the assurance. The issue is the faith in Christ. And as we trust, as we place our full confidence in Jesus' finished work on our behalf, there are real-time effects. We begin to be grateful for all he has done for us because of Christ. Our affections grow for the Lord because of Christ and what he's done. And if anyone loves God, the scripture says we are known by him. This is what it all comes down to. It's not what you feel. It's not what you do, right? It's who you know. The end of your life, the end of my life does not hinge on our figuring out the right answer to God, to give God. It hinges on whether we know him. Beloved, do you know him? Do you know him? You can. Come through Christ. Come to God through Christ, who said, I am the way, right? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says again in his wonderful prayer in John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you. Yada, you. It's an intimate knowing. It's a husband and wife knowing that they know you, God, the one true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Brothers and sisters, if if you're struggling with the am I saved question, and you lack assurance tonight, don't try harder. Don't be better. Don't try to pursue counterfeit assurances. Remember what he's done for you. Remember. That's what we do. We remember what he's done for us. Let Christ and his work be your assurance. And if that's true for us this this evening, we have his Holy Spirit, as he promised, who will finish that work of faith and trust that he's begun in us from the beginning. He will bring it to completion. He will do it at the end. That's his promise. And so we sing... The great hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And when we come to him, and we all will, when we come to him, In the end, we will say, Lord, Lord. And we won't hear, depart from me. We'll hear, I know who you are. I know who you are. I love you. Enter into the joy of your master. What a glorious day that will be. Let's pray. Lord, you alone are God. There is none in all the earth or in the heavens that is like you. You are holy. You have done a majestic work for us. You have planned it from eternity that the Son would atone, he would cover the sins of many. Thank you, Father. That Christ, although he despised the shame of the cross, he endured the cross for the joy set before him. 
And that joy he is living in as the one who is victorious. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord God, I pray for us that your spirit would confirm with our spirit that we are children of God, that we would remember your love poured out onto Christ and on to that cross for us, Lord. We praise you. It is finished. We love you. Thank you that you have loved us and that we will be with the Son to behold him in all his glory forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.